I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, an artist and psychoanalyst based in Sweden who works with people internationally, and this is episode 241 of Rendering Unconscious podcast. My guest today is Carl Abrahamson, a Swedish author, publisher, and filmmaker, and my husband. He's here to talk about his newest book, Source Magic, The Origin of Art, Science, and Culture. Join us on Sunday, May 14th, as Carl presents The People Eaters Are Having a Great Feast, The Uncanny in Cinema, Ingmar Bergman's Hour of the Wolf, an illustrated online lecture that'll be hosted by Morbid Anatomy Museum. Visit morbidanatomy.org slash events for links and more information. You can also visit our website, psychartcult.org. In September, Carl and I will be hosting a four-week course online via Zoom, also via Morbid Anatomy Museum, called Harnessing the Magic and Creative Power of the Cut-Up Method, a la William Burroughs, David Bowie, and Genesis Peorage. Visit Rendering Unconscious main website, renderingunconscious.org, for links and more information, as well as links to Carl's social media and main website, carlabrahamson.com. He's just recently posted a new lecture called Tripping the Dark Light Fantastic, some notes on Derek Jarman and his influence, which you can find at his Vimeo page. Join us at Patreon, where Carl and I post exclusive content every week. That's the best way to support Rendering Unconscious Podcast and all of our creative endeavors. Visit patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. Thank you so much to our Patreon community. Your support is hugely appreciated. As usual, there is a video of this discussion up at YouTube. Visit Trapar Films' YouTube page. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T, film at YouTube. Let's talk about your new book, Source Magic. Yeah, let's do that. Um, it uh, is another one of those anthologies. Since I am very productive, I write essays, lectures, uh, pieces for my own entertainment in a way about or cultural and cultural topics. Um, it's hard to keep up even for me, but a good way to deal with all, all of these things is to anthologize them. And uh, I've done a few. Uh, Resonances was the first one in 2014. And then Occulture uh, came in 2018. And this year, uh, there's Source Magic, the origin of art, science, and culture, which sounds really grand, uh, and it is. But it is an anthology of essays from the, this past year, the, these past years, basically, uh, about... Um, the usual suspects, uh, occulture, the occult culture, uh, magical anthropological perspectives when looking at things in the world. Um, and as I collected them, 
uh, for publication, I realized that there is some kind of substantial red thread here um, that points to uh, a theory, if you will, or a thesis that um, our entire uh, organism, biological, mental, intellectual, on all levels, we are ingrained with uh, magic. Uh, since you know time immemorial, so-called before historical time, even we have been working with, with a magical approach, magical thinking, uh, magical behavior, uh, intuitive decision making, uh, trusting in dreams, and those who are more capable of dreaming, like the the shamanic elements of the tribe, um, has always been with us. And I do believe that our genes, the genetics, uh, basically, a kind of uh, uh, recording device, you know, because we are totally uh, acting out on stimuli coming from our instincts and our instincts are recorded composites of what we've experienced and our ancestors have experienced throughout the uh, beyond the millennia for a long, long, long time for total all of Homo sapiens time. And uh, logically then, um, I'm not surprised that we are today immersed in uh, magical themes, in uh, fiction and culture, um, and also magical thinking is very, very uh, present because I do believe that uh, humans have always worked a kind of magical approach, magical thinking in dire straits. When we need to fix something, we've had this element of trusting what you feel on the inside and what you find inside, uh, and then making decisions based on that, rather than trusting uh, some kind of authority too much, when you know that the authority is basically only uh, there because of, for instance, brute force, some kind of dull, blind uh, authority without you know, them thinking about what's good for, for everyone. Uh, and this kind of holistic thinking that we're all parts of the same organism is also ingrained in my uh, thesis or these theses that are, you know, uh, part and par parcel of a kind of a magical anthropological approach and where this thing I call source magic is something we all carry. You know, not just genetically, but, you know, mentally and how we approach things and how we behave in our... Um, you know, social interactions, we are completely permeated by and in, uh, ingrained with magical thinking and magical behavior, a ritualized behavior. And in that, there's also the need for uh, transcendence. We are, I would say, dependent. We're addicted to transcendence. And if it's good, it can be very re re revealing and relaxing and encouraging, energizing at the same time. And if it's bad, it can be dulling, sedating, um and um leading nowhere basically into sort of addictive uh, behavior instead of liberating behavior um and we can see that reflected like in weekend behaviors when some people like to get high other people like to get drunk yeah, and those are both like remnants of this really important need to uh, transcend we need to transcend our rational thinking and sort of the the mental cogitations and and just be free uh, and it's probably not good to be free 24 7 uh, but it's those moments are important for us to jolt uh, and change the perspective for for a for a limited time that will give us perspective on what we're doing and if we're heading in the right direction so that's basically what the book is about 
Okay, great. That's so interesting to hear you talk about your book because I haven't really heard you present it before. Right. I mean, it's it's um, both easy and uh, hard. It's easy because I basically wrote all of the stuff and it's hard to contextualize something that is like a bouquet. I mean, there's stuff about the Prisoner TV series. There's stuff about you and me going on these pilgrimage tours. There's stuff about um, remembering uh, Genesis Peorage. There's stuff about uh, many different things. However, this kind of red thread that I was talking about um, makes it all make sense. It ties it up in a very, very nice way. And it's something that I didn't fully realize until actually I'd been working on this book. Uh, the previous ones were more like... Uh, you know, anthologies of past essays and texts and lectures. Um, but when I look back at them, there's the same red thread runs through that. I guess it's natural in a way because they all come from the same mind. Uh, so whatever we do, whether we write about a TV series or some serious magical pilgrimage, it is the same because it's the same mind that approaches these uh, topics uh, with the same kind of goggles in a way. Well, and that's something you've helped me to see is how central magic is to human life. Yeah, absolutely. And and like I said, I think it's uh, central is not strong enough a word to, to really cement how important it is. Um, it's just something that's on par with uh, uh, perhaps not breathing, but in terms of how we deal with the world, how we take in uh, stimuli via the senses, and then we process them, uh, the brain filters, and then the body reacts based on what we want to achieve with this data. And, and um, the magical approach is totally uh, integrated in that process. I mean, when we talk about magic, we think about, you know, arcane mysteries and sort of these uh, uh, occult, occult things going on, whether it's uh, uh, invisible things or, uh, or magicians in robes. And, uh, but that's just like the surface of it. When you scratch the surface, you realize that each and every human being uh, has this inherently in him or herself because... We all we take in the data, we process it, and then comes the critical thing. How do we act upon these things? Well, there are cultural impositions. It says that, uh, no, you can't eat pork, or yes, indulge in pork, uh, or other like cultural differences uh, that are basically arbitrary and has to do with uh, survival things originally. Um, but at the same time, uh, there are many things uh, that make us so alike. Even the cultural differences, cultural impositions uh, are uh, overrun or superseded by uh, how we interpret the data that comes in uh, to us. And basically, what it all boils down to, as always, it's survival, isn't it? We want to survive. And if we are stronger within our little community or tribe or society or culture even, uh, that makes our chances of survival better. That goes both on an individual level, but it's also on a collective level. And, and uh, I think the reason why uh, we are currently experiencing a kind of a thematic and attitude avalanche of magical influx is that it's no longer enough to deal with magic on an individual level, we really need to go collective and uh, on a global scale. And that's problematic because it's really something that we haven't done before. Or if it has happened before, like in a previous uh, you know, extinction, uh, it's 
we have no remnants. We have no history of that. We we can't you know see archaeological things even. Uh, maybe the thing in in um, by that volcano where people sort of froze in time. Uh, but that does that doesn't really yeah exactly. But that doesn't really say anything about how they they were surprised by that. They couldn't deal magically or in any other way. It was just a natural force coming on so strong that you could just like freeze in the moment and be preserved in a way. Uh, but what we have to do now is to look at the avenues of survival, and it sure seems that nothing can be fixed by purely individual decisions it needs to be a collective thing and that's the new aspect and and uh, how does magic relate to that then well uh, it's magical enough when two people can collaborate you know <laughs> uh, so how would an entire world do that with eight billion people and you know maybe a couple of million decision makers well it requires some kind of you know enlightened state or at least some kind of extra level of uh, altruistic holistic thinking and whether we come to that point i don't know but it is crucial to realize that we have to make decisions in new ways you can't simply be causal you can't simply make decisions based on rational cogitation uh, there needs to be new approaches um, and um, that is inherently magical because if we don't survive on a collective level then very uh, likely we won't survive on an individual level either because the straits are so dire and the prognosis is, is so bad. Um, yet I'm an optimist because I do believe that people have uh, dealt with very difficult things before and they've always overcome the hurdles by thinking in new ways. So that's really the big challenge. And I don't mean thinking merely in again, in rational cogitation and sort of computing data, you need to look at things from different perspectives and see, for instance, the cultures that have had the most longevity, have experienced the most you know, consistent um, avenue of survival in a way. Well, that's probably the indigenous cultures that, that are still around, you know, because they, they stay off uh, not only the grid, uh, but they stay off, uh, stay out of uh, the problems that come with too much interaction with people who are too greedy, etc., etc., and also, not surprisingly, these indigenous cultures usually have a very, very integrated um, uh, magical system that, that allows for the transcendence, that allows for them to see how to deal with life in the best possible way. Absolutely, we need to integrate more of that kind of thinking. Yeah. And, and um, that said, I've enjoyed reading the book. I mean, it just came out basically a couple of months ago now and um, has a great uh, introduction by Nikolai de Matos Frieswald, who's been writing so much about uh, Kimbanda and sort of the, the African diaspora uh, elements of magic. It's very, very uh, uh, interesting to read how other people sort of look at my work in that sense. And I've great, gotten some great praise uh, for the book. And um it seems that these ideas are resonant with what other magicians and other young people and other just intelligent people are actually thinking about, but they may not know uh, how to deal with it. And I offer no, uh, you know, 10 easy steps or no schooling or no uh, cult. Uh, I just share my take and my interpretation of these cultural phenomena that sort of indicate that we're moving in that direction. So it's basically, uh, you open the book and you can read my mind. 
in a way. These are the things that I'm thinking about and I will keep thinking about, you know, anything from from a weird um, B-movies to high-strung esoteric philosophies. For me, there's no difference. They all indicate something about the people who made them. Uh, someone can be a good writer, another person is a good painter, another one is a good whatever else. And uh, all of these things are interesting to look at because uh, again, inherently, all that these people are trying to achieve is to maximize their own individual uh, survival potential. Unless, of course, they've swung uh, and are completely self-destructive. But that also makes for good stories. That also makes, makes for good insight by looking at how wrong things can actually go. And unfortunately, we've seen an increase of those things over the past, I don't know, uh, two centuries, something like that, where the hubris have gotten so strong that it's clouded the potential of real survival. It's just been like a um, compensation, a compensation for uh, being too immersed in the death drive, as my wife would say. Well, I love it. I've read it at least twice. And yeah, I always get something new out of it. Will you talk a little bit about what magical anthropology is? Absolutely. Um, in the early 90s, I was, uh, uh, you know, well, a lot younger and, and uh, maybe a little bit cynical. And I had something that I came up with because of the paniness of it, the Institute of Comparative Misanthropology. Uh, you know, to be a misanthropologist is to look at the world uh, with, you know, I don't know, satirical or maybe cynical uh, shades and and um, you know look at the human comedy in a way, or could also human tragedy. However, in, during, throughout the 90s, I changed a little bit, and I became more and more seriously interested in comparing different magical approaches and magical systems, and also magical cultures, magic, religious cultures, religious philosophies. And it dawned on me uh, what we just talked about that you know every culture has this, each individual has this. So the step was then to leave the youthful and cynical, humorous thing of misanthropology and move it into magical anthropology. So I created the Institute of Comparative Magical Anthropology, which is the study of how human beings relate to magic as a phenomenon, as an approach, as an attitude, as a cultural glue, um, as the origin of creativity and art and science and all these things. Um, and I've done that ever since. And it's been work, um, I would say, mainly with uh, editing and publishing the Fenris Wolf, the occultural, magical, anthropological journal that comes out now and then and has been going since 1989. Uh, but there have also been ex um, expeditions uh, to Tibet and Nepal uh, researching the uh, uh, Tibetans in exile, how they look at ritual specifically and, and magic also. Um, and it's just like a, a reservoir, you know, it's just something where I collect, it's like an archive, it's what's called now a think tank perhaps, in which uh, I pour information and then stir it and then uh, think about it and then cull things from that that I write about and also that other people write, write about too. Uh, and it's uh, an amazingly satisfying um, umbrella to be working under. Magical anthropology is something fantastic because it uh, traverses and transcends the um, 
academic stagnation in a way. Uh, we are not locked in a form. Uh, we have no peer peers. <laughs> you know, it's we don't have any need to adapt the output, uh, any rigorous, uh, you know, uh, restraining form or attitude. We want to be free in looking at things that make human beings free. And that's pure logic. And, and um, I can only see it growing, you know, more and the more uh, I and other people write about this under the magical anthropological umbrella, uh, the more it will, you know, gain momentum, the more it will show its presence. And I think it's an attitude that will be important in how we look at things, uh, not only what other the other people are doing, but also what we're doing together. Uh, we need to have a magical anthropological approach. And that's something that I did write about in, in Source Magic in one of the essays, is that um, magic is like the core, it's the source, it's the uh, atomic or uh, center uh, around which electrons uh, revolve. For instance, science, for instance, art, for instance, uh, chemistry, biology, uh, engineering, all of these things, they revolve around the, the atomic core of magic. Um, so in that sense, it is also creating a model for interpretation of basically every manifestation of human ingenuity, human intelligence, uh, human culture, basically. Wonderful. And you wrote about some of those expeditions in your upcoming book that you just handed in, your kind of magical autobiography of sorts. That should be out next year, right? Yeah, it will be out uh, early uh, 2024. Um, it uh, doesn't have an official title yet. The working title is Two Times Saturn uh, because of I've gone through two Saturn returns, or I will have when the book comes out. Uh, and um, uh, I thought it was uh, important to integrate uh, memories and experiences of those trips to Tibet proper, to Nepal, to India, where we met so many um, Tibetans in exile and other, you know, Tibeto Buddhists also, uh, because it was such an incredibly inspiring and revealing experience to be in their presence, not as some kind of... Uh, phenomenon that you go to a cultural center here in the West and you sort of take part of a uh, enlightened conversation between one Buddhist monk and someone else, but to actually be in their environment and be immersed in their art and also realize how important it is. And I would argue not only for them or for us as Western magicians, uh, but for everyone to be immersed in a ritual system that ha that is uh, um, uh, you know, completely uh, immersed in, in symbols, symbology, to have these things where you have a language that is non-rational. It's not based on a strict, clear communication, but dropping little seed into people's minds, those who are active, so that it can bloom within them. You know, in, in Buddhism in general, you have um, the Om Mani Padme Hum uh, mantra, as, you know, the most central one, um, you know, about the, the finding the jewel in the lotus, you know, that's a beautiful symbol. Um, but it basically, basically means that you have to pick off the petals, pick, pick off the leaves, pick up, you know, anything that's redundant, and you will find the jewel in the lotus. Um, as a magical process, that's a remarkable, beautiful symbol. And again, their entire culture, if you look, iconography, uh, symbols, ritual behavior, the using of vibration through chanting and, and the musical instruments, it's just so advanced. Uh, um, and it's simple at the same time. Um, 
that uh, we have a lot to learn from that. And I think the entire world does. Each culture has. Many cultures have those elements, you know, a unique iconography, uh, the use of music and vibration and chanting. So it's not something that's exclusive to them, but it's exclusive in the sense that it's all about enlightening the mind. It's about setting the mind free. Whereas in most, uh, many, I would say many other uh, cultures, specifically the, the monotheistical ones, it's about keeping people down. It's not about encouraging them to be free. It's, it's a crowd control thing. It's, um, I don't know, pretty dra draconian and dark in, um, in the way that they use a language uh, of possible liberation in order to keep people down in very much in the same way that commercial advertising words works i think that makes sense and, and commercial advertising comes from this kind of monotheistic that went to capitalistic culture mm. and you also have a brand new book out called chimera obscura that's right it's a, it's um book of art or, or photographs, basically, uh, I wanted for a long time to sort of collect uh, images that have been exhibited. Um, and this specific book, Chimera Obscura, it collects um, my ex some of my exhibitions from 2003 to th 2014, basically. And it's uh, photographic images. Um, one has a uh, the theme of, of death, for instance, where I realized that I've been taking so many pictures of things that are dead or cemeteries or the iconography of death in different cultures and different trips I've taken. Um, so that was quite a beautiful uh, exhibition. And one is about uh, just, uh, you know, uh, impressions from other kinds of travels uh, throughout many years. Um, and one is uh, portraits of uh, artists and creatives that I've met. Um, and you know, so, so it's a, uh, again a bouquet of different things. But I'm very happy to to um, to see it and hold it. I have it right here uh, because it is um, one thing to have an idea. Uh, it's a completely different thing to actually hold it and sniff it and look in it. So I'm very happy about that. Chimera Obscura selected exhibitions 2003 to 2014, and it gives me um, inspiration to work on similar volumes. This has been basically taking photographs since 1978 when I was 12 uh, and it has accumulated in a way that's kind of overwhelming um, and I still you know still have all the negatives and I can roam through them and they're in good chronological order and there are many themes in there themes that could make for nice books uh, and of course there are other exhibitions that didn't fit in this volume that I could make as sort of singular books too and for me the point of uh, making books like this, it's um, very selfish in a way it, because it becomes like a dialogue with myself or a, a split up monologue where I can um, see myself at a distance, see what I looked at, uh, see uh, patterns in my scanning the world. It's kind of a revealing process actually, bordering on, on um, psychoanalysis, but in image form. Uh, and uh, yeah, I it's just very, very revealing, very satisfying. And I just want to do more of those things. Um, I even came up with the Chimera Obscura uh, title um, I came up with when I was coming up with another word, another punny word called pathography. You know, this mix between pathology and photography. Because uh, why is it that some people, like myself, stroll 
through the world, camera in hand, and just take these pictures. It's a very intuitive process. I'm not actively looking for something. I'm just looking at the world with eyes open and camera in hand, and I take these pictures. And when you collect them, which is a different kind of analytical process, and edit them in a way, uh, you again see what attracts me and why you start questioning, you know, why, why is this? So in that sense, it is an interesting little insight into my pathology as a photographer, hence pathography. And Chimera Obscura is uh, very much a part of the pathography. And this is something that I've been uh, writing about, this one essay in particular, uh, in the upcoming uh, book of collected Patreon posts, that I'm uh, putting together with my beautiful wife, Vanessa Sinclair. Uh, and sort of one year of our so-called Magic Monday posts is coming out in book form very, very soon. And it's the second volume of that series. The first one was the book called um, It's Magic Monday Every Day of the Week. And, and um, this new one is more like an a lavish art book in a way because we have so much image material in our posts but anyway the the photography text uh, that i wrote to sort of define that is in that coming book so people should definitely check that out and as you know we've written so much about all these magical topics and creative topics uh, basically uh, take little breathers in our active life each monday to write this uh, post that we collect annually in these um, quite hefty volumes, I have to say. Yeah, and I'm excited that the new one is going to be a bigger size, like the Tripartisan Review, yeah. which was also such a great art book that we're both in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, it's just, um, just going to keep on coming. We seem to be uh, pathological in our creativity, and I'm very happy about that uh, because one thing would be if it's... Um, completely isolated phenomenon where we, we do this and and uh, no one takes notice basically but we are seeing that the um, feedback and the interest is increasing all the time uh, people are commenting writing uh, emails uh, basically giving us uh, i wouldn't say justification but certainly inspiration to do more of the same because one big part of it for me is to be involved in this kind of dialogue you know, uh, whether someone is in Indonesia or Australia or in the US or in Sweden, doesn't matter. We're all connected now anyway. And and um, so if people see our material and, and uh, get inspired by that, that makes me happy. And I think it, think it makes you happy also. It's one of the great reasons why we work so hard on this. Yeah, exactly. And and like you've said before, I think it was when we did a discussion for the upcoming Magic Monday book, it's not about... It's about sharing so people can see what our process is like, not necessarily for them to emulate or have the same process, but the, so they can be inspired to have their own process, whatever form that takes. Mm, absolutely. And I think that's uh, for me has always been there, you know, from the early fanzine days, which was before even I was interested in, in the occult or culture. Uh, but then I think it was sort of tweaked. Uh, very much during the Topi days, in my days with the Temple of Psychic Youth, uh, in the sense that it was 
always about the networking, you know, magical things, absolutely. But it was very much this thing of sharing what you experienced in a total honesty and also sharing material that had been occult, not necessarily hocus pocus occult, but just forgotten or hidden away or ostracized or, or forbidden even. And uh, um, I've never really left that attitude. I always wanted to carry on and just do more and more and more and share more and more and more. And I'm happy to say that that's uh, uh, been a gradually successful uh, thing where we now have uh, great output of our own stuff, also of other people's stuff, um, musical collaborations, like you've been working with Pete Murphy, up to 10 albums soon. It's amazing. And they're fantastic. And, and um you know, other kinds of collaborations. And it's just uh, makes life very exciting, I think. Absolutely. I've been focusing more and more on integrating creativity into life. And it's really working. I also wrote about that in some Magic Monday posts and actually at some point like made a list of all the different things that I wanted to be doing that I wasn't doing enough of and made sure I was doing them more and more often. And now I don't have to think about it so much because those are the things that I'm doing every day without having to kind of carve out the time. The time is just already there now. So it works. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, uh, again, I, I preferred not to, to use the word justification. It's not a justification that people are interested in what we do, uh, but it's nice. It's nice to, to get kudos and sort of appreciation because we work with this uh, every day, uh, almost every night. I mean, a lot uh, with all these um, filterings, you could call it, uh, of um, whether it's uh, psychoanalysis, art or, or uh, the occult. Which leads us into to, uh, uh, an upcoming talk that I'm looking forward to very, very much uh, in our in our um, cooperation collaboration with uh, Morbid Anatomy, the monthly psych art cult uh, uh, evenings. The next one is mine, and and I look forward to that a lot. I'm going to talk about. Uh, one of my favorite films, I wouldn't say it's the the most favorite film, but it's definitely my top 10 list. It's Ingmar Bergman's uh, Hour of the Wolf from uh, 1968, I think. It's just an incredible film about um, the darker sides of, of the creative neurosis. Um, perfect in every way, I would say, cinematically, uh, in terms of acting, the script, uh, psychological... Um, wealth <laughs> uh, it really bergman really um hit the um nail head on there it's a fantastic film so i'm going to be talking about that in the upcoming psych art cult at morbid anatomy and i hope that people will will um, will join us there because those meetings are usually a lot of fun yeah and that's on may 14th and we'll link to that in the liner notes for this episode. And that mm -hmm. piece that you're presenting is also part of the book that I edited on Ingmar Bergman's films that you contributed a chapter to. Yeah. So that's another thing that people should go out and get. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. It's a great anthology of, of uh, psychological um, uh, pieces on, on various of, of uh, Bergman's films. And I mean, there's such depth there. It's just incredible. I'm not saying that it was everything was good, but I mean, name one director that's made only good films. That person doesn't exist, you know. Uh, but Bergman, and specifically, I would say um, 
1960s, 1970s, just, I don't know, the, the, the depth there and psychological insight is just incredible, absolutely incredible. And uh, when he becomes meta in the sense that he comments on his own uh, artistic process or artistic neurosis, then I think uh, it doesn't get better than that. No one else has sort of uh, achieved that in a more uh, both horrifying and, and uh, endearing way. Yeah, exactly. And that that movie, Hour of the Wolf, is really the pinnacle of that, too, where, yeah. you know, it's about this artist going mad on an island with his pregnant wife and Liv Ullman was his you know, partner and she was pregnant with his child and she was the actress playing that part in the film. And yeah, it's clear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's be, beyond belief and it's beyond convention. It's sort of completely a transcendental film, both in its making and in the result. And, and sometimes those things can be matched. You know, I'm thinking of the films of Werner Herzog, for instance, where he's he's as crazy as his films, in a sense. You know, he, he goes through those lengths because he wants to do that, and then it's reflected in the films. Um, not 100%, but, you know, many, many masterpieces have been achieved like that. And Bergman, Bergman I think, is, is uh, the same when he was at his peak. You know, there was like no boundary between um, the creator and the created. And I think yeah, that's they're real uh, artists in that sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. But I mean, it's also uh, the meta aspect adds to the flavor. Yeah, and then as part of our Morbid Anatomy series in June, we're going to have Chao Wan Ku, which is going to be amazing. And then July, you're coming back with Tom uh, to do the Topi Talk. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, Tom Banger was the, the guy who was uh, responsible for the administration of Topi North America. Uh, and I was the one responsible for, for Topi Scandinavia and eventually Topi Europe. Um, and we were in contact from, I guess, from 1986 or something like that, exchanging information and, and um, just, you know, being in touch and making this this thing a reality together with all the other Topi nodes that were called either access points or stations. Um, so we have now reconnected and it's been wonderful and we can sort of compare perspectives. And I think that's exactly what we're going to do in this um, uh, evening at Morbid Anatomy, uh, talk about our own individual experiences of Topi, uh, what it was, what really happened, etc. Uh, and then, of course, see what's there for our times. Is there anything substantial there that we can move on into the present time and also um, into the future? Uh, I believe so, but I'm going to save those uh, ideas and thoughts uh, until that that evening together with Tom Banger at the Psych Art Cult Care of Morbid Anatomy in the June, right? That'll be July 16th. July 16th, yeah. Yeah, and then in September, we're teaching a class together through Morbid Anatomy. So that'll be four Sundays uh, starting September 10th on the magic and creative potential of the cut-up method. Yeah, that'll be fun. I mean, also in this um, book that we are preparing now for publication we may need to call on our cosmic friends, as it's called, uh, which is basically one year of summing up our Magic Monday posts at Patreon. Uh, we do uh, reference cut-ups, the cut-up method, um, historical cut-ups, you know, a lot. It's, it's obviously something that's important to us. Um, 
and uh, yeah, we could talk about you know why, uh, but I think we have to a great extent already. Uh, but it's interesting to see how one little artistic or psychological method uh, can be applied on so many different different things in life. Uh, it's not just about cutting up text and making a new kind of experimental poetry. Uh, I mean. Uh, Genesis Peorius talked about it as like behavioral cut-ups. You can cut up your own behavior and, of course, any kind of artistic expression to see what lies on a deeper um, level. And, of course, it's the same thing, same thing really, that, uh, uh, let's call them the oracular reflective surfaces, like the tarot, for instance, or the runes. It's the same kind of thing there. You have them interact in a more or less random uh, way and then what's there you interpret it's like a door opener that requires randomness and symbols uh, and how do you make a linear sentence symbolic well you cut it up you, you make it make no sense so that you can interpret uh, in a new way uh, it's really interesting i think um and that interest doesn't seem to go away because it's simply so so uh unfathomably deep in its potential uh, or rich in its potential uh, and usage. So I'm not surprised that we're both talking about it so much in this new book, but but uh, we do and we are working with it. I think uh, any kind of filmmaking is inherently a cut-up. doesn't need to be completely irrational or random. It can also be just uh, putting two things together after having tried other things to put together uh, and you prefer one. And I mean, I think the human mind is the same, even in completely random uh, circumstances. Uh, you do favor one interpretation before you, you uh, decide on one. That's the official one. Yeah, that's why I love Jonas Mikas's, uh films so much, because they're like collages of his memories. You know, uh, they're, they're like visual cut-ups in that way. Absolutely, absolutely. And I just want to say too, you mentioned your Shamir Obscure book, and I just want to comment that I love that book, and I love how it has such a bouquet, as you said, a variety of your different photographic exhibitions and your versatility in taking photographs. And of course, it has, as you mentioned, the Death is in Our Hearts uh, exhibition, which is very special to me because that was actually the second Morbid Anatomy event ever in Brooklyn. The first one was Caitlin and I talking about the cut-up method in Third Mind of Burroughs and Geisen and our work together. And the second one, which was on Burroughs' birthday, February 5th, which also happens to be the day that Cabaret Voltaire was launched. So it's a very data cut-up kind of day. Um, you came and presented Death is in Our Hearts at Morbid Anatomy in Brooklyn. Yeah, absolutely. And it was great. And, and again, you know, uh, thank you for inviting me to that. That led to many uh, fruitful uh, collaborations and, and uh, many years of a uh, great life. But I mean, I, I remember that uh, as being... Uh, um, not uncertain or insecure. I was just thinking, whoa, because I was so used to lecturing. You know, we have something rational that you present with a slideshow, and, and, and but uh, I couldn't really do that because it's just a photographic exhibition. So I thought, okay, I can talk a little bit about the process, why, I, you know, how I put this together, or or why. And I remember that it was a lot of fun in the sense of leaving the the scripted and just talking about the pictures. 
and and you can't really go wrong with with death, you know, because it's something that everyone is inherently attracted to, although they might not admit it. Uh, but the iconography of death specifically is very interesting to look at and compare uh, with, uh, um, uh, you know, how people look at, you know, death and dying and uh, post life, meaning sort of. Um, cemetery culture, uh, how people deal with it, and how they integrate the concepts like mourning and sorrow and and honoring, and also are the ancestors alive when they're dead? That's an interesting question. And I remember that uh, evening at uh, the physical um, morbid anatomy place in New York uh, was so great because uh, I was sort of freewheeling a lot, and I liked it. And um, I've done that more and more since then, I think. You know, when you have a thematic uh, lecture, you need to stick to certain rudimentary facts. But I like it very much when it becomes like a dialogue, uh, a dialogue in which I speak the most. Well, and that's what's nice about the morbid anatomy events in general. The, the way we do them now is people do come and present often a paper that they've written, but then we always have just as much time at the end for discussion between the speakers or with us and the speakers or, and, and getting questions from the audience. So it really turns into like a great discussion every time. Because as far as I found, the people that come to these events and are interested in this intersection with psychoanalysis, the arts and the occult are such great thinkers and such creative thinkers. And they're really open and open to listening and learning about different perspectives. Um, and it really, everybody just really plays off of each other in a great way. And it becomes very inspiring, I think, for all involved. Absolutely. And and we should probably mention also that the uh, it also accumulates nicely, but where is the accumulation? You know, I don't think many people backtrack, uh, for instance, on, on the Morbid Anatomy page or on uh, our page and find these old video recordings. Uh, so I wouldn't say the material is lost, but it gets drowned in this morass of digital uh, culture. I mean, we've decided to to cherry pick and anthologize many of the, the psych art cult evenings that we've had in book form just like we're doing now with the um, magic monday patreon posts uh, and with the fenris wolf and you know all these things where you, you sort of need to make it solid make it physical make it for something to to uh, enjoy uh, whenever they want to in book form uh, i think the book form is still superior to anything humans have ever achieved uh, and i think it will remain that way and that said, uh, it's staggering when you think about it because so we have had so many evenings with so much great material, not to mention your rendering unconscious uh, podcast and it's just so many great people talking about interesting things. So there will be many, many, many books in the future for us. Yeah, we're going to start anthologizing the Rendering Unconscious yeah. podcast interviews as well into thematic books. And yeah, and also get Rendering Unconscious, the first book, back out yeah. Um, because it's out of print at this point. High time. High time. Anything so, yeah. else you want to mention before we wrap up? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this, this, um, when you do a lot, you can sort of, uh, almost make yourself disappear because you, at one, some point you, you, you get so overwhelmed by it that, uh, the pace becomes slower and, um, it's something that you should try to avoid, but if it happens, it's really no problem. You just have to to work harder and more more uh, 
disciplined. Um, so there, there'll be many more books coming out from uh, the Trapar uh, desk um, and also films, getting back to finishing many of the An Art Apart documentaries that I've shot but not edited, meaning, you know, those interviews with uh, artists. Uh, and as for the music, something that I haven't really worked actively with for, for uh, many years now, um, I've done a, a, a few things, but not as much as I used to. But now I'm going to um, offer uh, the archive. You know, there are probably somewhere around 40 albums that need to come out again digitally and on uh, physical releases. So I'm going to, to be talking to uh, labels. Also, labels are very welcome to get in touch if they want this list of potential album releases. Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot of interesting stuff there. So that's how I intend to sort of push myself back into making music is to make sure that the archive gets out there and, and it can inspire other people, but it can also hopefully inspire me in a way to start making music again. Excellent, because the music's so good. And as always, I like to thank you at the end of the podcast for creating the intro and outro music for Rendering Unconscious podcast, too. That's right. That's right. Well, thank you, Kyle. It's so much fun to have you here. I've put so many of your different lectures up as episodes, and I'll list all of those also on the um, page for this episode so people can check out some of Carl's lectures that have been previous episodes but it's nice to actually have you here live mm -hmm. thank you very much it's it's a great pleasure and I'll see you in just a minute in the living room yeah, in about a minute or two yeah <laughs> until then be well bye bye <laughs> Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Carl Abrahamson. For more, visit his website, carlabrahamson.com. And join us at Morbid Anatomy on Sunday, May 14th, as Carl presents on Ingmar Bergman's The Hour of the Wolf. Thank you to Carl for creating the intro and outro music for Rendering Unconscious Podcast. And now a song from his album, The Larval Stage of a Bookworm. The song is called A Gentle Stroll in Wonderland. All of the music on Highbrow Lowlife's Bandcamp page is Name Your Price, so enjoy. Visit highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. Decrepit promise of lies and cigars makes a home boarded up storefront ready to bless for a promise and exercise with from a sensually trembling Randolph's unsure of just Christmas decorations the signaling laughter of electricity and steroid hubris. Father Flanagan will undoubtedly provide those answers. Although steel was towards the hieroglyphs, the devil cut out bulging muscle the launch working out. 
things like the moon, so we don't financing destined for progress out okay. in the space of others. Shortcut to slavery. There is much magic a walk ahead. Jesus now amplified butterfly for white and all spells. While passing we are Russian mystics in the Himalayas. Other clouds really really heavy as they seem. Wet lips well and promises of a total cost will be three hundred and sixty-five million dollars per year. As always, our heads are round in black and white. So our thoughts can change the direction of the street interrupted by the harp abuse. We are the banner of self-importance. Yes. It's actually not in agreement and the American flag flaps proudly, whispering, threading, smash that crab and smash it well. All echoes and interpretations very same to red leatherette cow to spasms are contortions and loud moans. This time the panties are all sisters having leading us up seductively to serene while yet long winding exhibitionist wandered. Exactly. Tolerance always shows up connection when, at the covers, you least expect it. These are lives little satisfied. And you can always displays a Donald Duck's genitals by the garment. We are yes. in love. We so want to look at dissectives and wax vaginas and penises. Whispered. We do. To which the man replied, We are well, ourselves, honey. In love, this dick is obsessed, suck itself, and yet fiercely independent. Different perspectives, Ray, yet both leading have to, to ways just a little existential bit. shadow. His of time experience. will come, and a creative reenactment between the lines of past tense Ray and looking for candy. And there is construction over and inside your purse. There's a detour. Why? People How? follow those signs blindly. because the painted regular skulls at Union Square tell us so. Bigger, while halting premature homage, African masses to swallow all the message of delight and power that most tells us scream on. Few recipient orgone of a different the dungeon's red leatherette. If you think shit happens, park here. I told you, come. You should have secreted codes or lies when you saw the crab meat juice. Christmas is coming.